I'm going to start in Judges chapter 6, story of Gideon. may be familiar to you. You can just listen, or if you want, you can turn in Judges 6. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops... <clears throat> The Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country, and they camped on the land and ruined all the crops from Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. And they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, and it was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love this part. Pardon me, Lord? (laughs) Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of the Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And then I want to just come to, uh, I think it's verse around verse 36. It says, uh, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And then from then on, everything he does, he does with the Spirit of the Lord upon him. So I want you to keep that in mind, okay? Now, we're going to go to 1 John, and this is going to seem a little strange, but I'll tie it together for you. Um, 1 John, I'm going to look at a couple passages there. And chapter 3, and verse 19, it says this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then in chapter 5, verse 6, let's back up. Make this make more sense. Verse 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. 
For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And we, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because the testimony which God has given to us about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son, and whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's a lot of scripture to read, right? <clears throat> I want you to notice uh, what we've been talking about, the kind of the series and the theme, and I apologize if this offends somebody, it's just the way the Lord gave it to me, and it's catchy, and it's just stuck with me. But we're talking this year about making shifts in our thinking, kind of talking about shift happens, right? <laughs> And, and you certainly see this in the life of Gideon or in the story of Gideon. And I want to back up just a second. And, and remember, when Jesus is on the cross, they have crucified him. And there's seven things that he says when you string it all together from the gospel accounts that we have in our Bibles. But one of the most famous words of Christ when he's on the cross dying is he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, right? So the issue of forgiveness or the issue of sin is a lack of knowledge. Father, forgive them, they know not. So the root of it is a lack of knowledge. But then we have to ask ourselves, what knowledge are we lacking in, correct? So with that in mind, let's look at the story of Gideon. And I want to kind of give you three principles, or there were three shifts that that Gideon had to make. So Gideon is living, obviously, in a very horrible time for Israel, where um, they're just being overwhelmed by their enemies. And if you notice in the story, it says there wasn't any crops or any livestock left. So it's a time of famine. It's a time of great lack, a time of great oppression by the Midianites. And Gideon is trying to hide some of the harvest in a wine press. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord shows up to him and says this to him. I love this. He says, the Lord is with you. He just makes a statement of fact. He doesn't uh, put it in the future tense at all. He says, he doesn't say the Lord is going to be with you. He doesn't require any kind of repentance. He doesn't require any kind of turning by Gideon to the Lord. He just simply shows up in the midst of this horrible time, in the midst of this time when apparently because of idol worship, God uh, or at least seemingly, God has abandoned his people. That's the mindset. That's the group mind of the day. God has abandoned us. <laughs> right? And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon responds and he says, Well, if the Lord is with us, then how come we don't see all these signs and wonders and all this wonderful stuff that we're supposed to be seeing? Does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> and so... The first thing Gideon has to be convinced of is that the Lord is with him. And it's funny because he says, pardon me. Like, it's such a strange thought. Do you see the shift that's taking place inside of him? So before anything can change outside, before there can be any alleviation of oppression, before there can be any victory walked in in life, before there can be any demonstration of the power of God that's with Israel, there has to be a shift that takes place in the way that they think, or at least in the way that Gideon thinks. So the first thing he's got to understand is that God is with him. The second thing that he has to understand is that God is not just with him, but that God is for him. 
Uh, go, so basically he tells him, go in this strength of yours. He doesn't even address his doubts. I love this. He, he, I mean, you ever talk to God like, God, do you see what's going on down here? <laughs> and, and God doesn't even address it. God doesn't even talk to him about it. And he certainly doesn't counsel with him. And he certainly doesn't, you know, try to find out where he got wounded as a child so that he can address that issue. He just simply makes another statement of fact. He says, uh, he says, go in this might of yours, right? And deliver Israel. So the second thing he had to get settled in his mind was that God was for him. So he had to understand that God was with him. Uh, he had to understand that God was for him, right? And then he does some stuff that has some significance, but we don't have time to go into it. And, uh, and then later on in the story, it says the spirit of the Lord. This is where our Bibles read the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. But that really doesn't make sense if God had already said the Lord is with you. Because it's a bad translation, but the translators didn't know what to do with it. Because in the original text and some of you, if you have a good Bible, it'll have a footnote. And you can go into the <clears throat> margin and it will tell you what it actually says. What it actually says was the spirit of the Lord put on Gideon. The spirit of the Lord put on Gideon. <laughs> so he not only had to understand that God was with him. He also had to understand that God was for him. But it, before anything could happen, there had to be a realization of the fact that God was in him. <laughs> that God put on Gideon and did that stuff. It's a totally different paradigm than the Lord coming upon him. Right? Now, let's come to the first John passage. Let, let me let me back up and do this. How many of you were ever taught in in Christian thought or just in life in general? And you don't have to raise your hand. But let your conscience be your guide. If you're, if you're getting ready to do something, let your conscience be your guide. Yeah. There's no place in the Bible that you're ever told to let your conscience be your guide. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says, They that are the sons and daughters of God, that they that are the children of God, are led by the Spirit of God, not led by their conscience. And the Greek understanding of conscience is not what we think it is anyway. It always, conscience always has to do with the past. It never has to do with the future. So if you're talking about making a decision or you're looking for guidance and you're saying let your conscience be your guide, you're looking forward. But conscience always had to do with the past. And conscience never had to do with anything good. Here was the Greek understanding of conscience. And, and our English translation kind of preserves a little bit of it, because if, if you just look at the word conscience, it's con-science. C-O-N, the prefix there, means to be with something. And science is basically knowledge, and so it's a, or it's a testimony based on the senses. Right? So your conscience is the testimony of the senses. And it's always standing against you. <laughs> it's always testifying against you. So John says, if, if you're of the truth, your heart will find rest in the presence of God. But if your heart condemns you, 
God is greater than your heart. Then he goes on later, taking the same thought. Now, here's the, here's the way it reads, and it drives me nuts. This, this passage in, in uh, 1 John, it's one of the hardest passages to interpret. If you go buy a book on hard sayings in the New Testament or hard sayings in the Bible, guaranteed this passage in John 5, 1 John 5 that we just read is going to be difficult for you. Because it sounds like the one who comes by water and blood is Jesus. But if you can read it differently, because he says it's a little bit out of context to do that, because it starts out and it says anyone born of God has overcome the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This is the one who comes by water and by blood. The one who comes through the water and the one who comes through the blood is the one who is born of God and who is overcoming because of his faith. Water, obviously, there is probably referring to baptism because baptism was a bigger deal in the early church than we've made it today. And baptism was a place where your sins were washed away, right? Blood, the blood of Christ has to do with the cleansing of the conscience. Hebrews talks about that. Their conscience may be purified from evil works by the blood of Christ. If the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, how much more shall the blood of Christ purify your conscience from evil works that you might serve the living God? So you have to come, if you're going to overcome, you have to come by water and you have to come by blood and you have to believe the testimony of the spirit. That's the one who overcomes. Right? So here's our problem. We have basically at least two different life scripts. Scripts, stories, parts, roles that we play. Most people only know the one. The truth is, is that your your soul comes with a Sort of a destiny code. It, it comes with, uh, in other words, um, when God created you, he didn't create your body first. <laughs> the Bible says you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons of God, right? So when God was choosing you, 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 were, you, you actually have an eternal existence because you always existed in the mind of God. Because the reality is, is that you and God cannot be separated. (laughs) You cannot come from God and be separated from God. So God had an idea about who you are. And it was the idea that is the life principle inside you that animates everything that you do. So when you're born, there are certain physical processes. Not when you're born, when you're conceived. When you are conceived, there are certain physical processes that take place in an environment supposed to be of love. And in that environment of love, God takes the thought of who you are, the seed of who you are, and everything that He designed and desired for you to be and to become and to grow into and 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 that which that thought which unites you permanently to the divine and he planted it inside of your body and the the flesh and the blood kind of gets wrapped around sort of the scroll of your life the scroll of your destiny that comes forth from the mind of God that is intimately connected to the word of God that created all things And your purpose is to discover and develop that. 
That, that's the knowledge. See, the word sin simply means to miss the mark. We look at sin strictly from a societal perspective, from the perspective of our society and what is right and what was wrong. We look at it in a very juridical, very legalistic sort of way. But the word originally means simply to miss the mark. So sin can be different for every single person. Because you have, because that, that scroll, that code, if you will, that thing that you came with that you're supposed to externalize and that you're supposed to manifest and that you're supposed to grow into and develop, anything other than that is missing the mark. And so the problem is you don't know. Father, forgive them, they know not. And the reason you don't know is because your five senses are baptized in an environment that believes that God is other than, that God is separate than, that God is against, or whatever. And so we grow up in our, in our subconscious. You realize you have a subconscious mind. How many of you have ever had a memory that you hadn't thought about in a long time? Ever. Or a, any memory. If I, if I ask you, what did you do last Sunday? You have to think, Right? But where does that information come from? It comes from a place called your subconscious. So you have all kinds of memories and events and things that have formulated the external you. Got it? So you've got an inner person who resonates with the code, the destiny code or the soul code that God built into you before the foundation of the world, before you were formed in your mother's womb. But then you have this lifelong script of information, and usually what gets embedded in it is all of the shortcomings, all the places where you don't measure up, right? So it could be something as simple as uh, disappointing your parents. It could be something as simple as not being able to get along with your peers uh, in school. Who wasn't made fun of at some point in their Growing up, and let me ask you this question, who didn't make fun of somebody growing up? I know I did. <laughs> so, but, but we don't usually remember those things. We just remember the things that were done to us, right? And so we carry that, that thing that then formulates and tells us who we are. So that we create, if you will, a self oftentimes that, com- that is completely at odds with the self that God wants us to actualize and manifest. So, the one, so watch this. The one who is born of God is the one who starts over. All right, let me do it this way. I remember when we first got our, our son, and, you know, I have a bent towards psychology, and I was actually in my master's program when we got Elijah. And so my mind was on a lot of that stuff. And I'm looking at Elijah, and I'm thinking, as a baby, I'm thinking he's a, he's a blank slate. Now, he's not because he has a destiny code that he came with. But in terms of his outer person, in terms of his personality and those things, he's a blank slate. And I remember looking at him and thinking, God, what did you put inside of him? What do you want to have actualized? And I remember the responsibility that I felt of being his father and thinking that I will have, I will be one of, you know, a few people in his life that will have an incredible influence on him and imprint him for good or for bad.
And I remember, th- and I remember my mind would go forward and I would think about, I wonder what kind of mistakes I'm going to make that are going to imprint him <laughs> in a negative way. Am I resonating with anybody, talking to anybody, right? Because he's a blank slate, right? Because he's just been born. So watch this. This is the one who, over, whoever has been born of God has overcome the world. So in other words, for an overcoming life to manifest, we have to be able to start over. We have to be able to come through a process of a new birth where literally we forget who we are and we become once again that blank slate so so that the first step in all of this is we have to be able to shut down sometimes to the evidence of our physical senses if we believe the testimony of man see that's what he's talking about we receive the testimony of man So if kids told me I was a geek in school, or if my teacher told me I couldn't learn math, or my parents told me I was a bad kid, or whatever the case may be, I'm receiving the testimony of man. And there is a testimony of man inside of me that constricts the the person that I really am, that is testifying constantly to me about what is possible and what is not possible, what is available and what is not available, what... uh, What is right? What is wrong? Where did I break the rules? Where did I fall short? How does life work? See, that that's the testimony of the conscience. And so I have to go through a process. See, here's what I'm saying. God put an overcoming life inside you. God put an overcoming seed inside you. And just like Gideon, no matter what's going on in your life, you have to have as a foundation for everything that no matter what your circumstance look like, the God of the universe, the Creator... The the Almighty God, the ever-loving, wise God, is absolutely with you. He is with you in your mess. He is with you in your circumstances. He is with you in your trials. He is with you in your valleys. He is with you in everything that you're going through. And so sometimes you look at the testimony of your senses, and you say, if God was with us, then where is the answers to my prayers? If God is with us, then where is the signs and the wonders? If God is with us, then where is the demonstrations of power? And you can begin to operate and act and live on that testimony. And when you do, you will just perpetuate more mess. Or you can begin to shut down to that. You can begin to challenge that. You can begin to close your eyes to the circumstances. Science is based on the observation of the senses. So if you're going to cleanse your conscience, you've got to stop trusting everything you see, everything you hear, and everything you feel, and everything that pops into your brain. You don't have to believe everything that you think. You don't have to believe everything you think is true is really true. You don't have to believe every story you tell yourself. And the more you believe victim stories, the more you give off victim energy. And when you're giving off victim energy, guess who you draw? Perpetrators. Because there's this whole subconscious interplay between people. And if you, think a, if you think a perp isn't out looking for a victim, you're crazy. If you think somebody who thinks the way you get ahead in life is stepping on people and abusing people and misusing people and lying to people and mistreating people and you're giving off a signal that says, I'm weak, 
<laughs> I'm always a victim. I, I never win in life. I'm never victorious in life. I'm never overcoming in life. You better believe the two of you are going to resonate. <laughs> You're going to be drawn together like flies to... Thank you. <laughs> right. Do, do you get it? So sometimes you have to you have to shut that stuff down inside you. And that's where that's where baptism. That's why baptism. I, I think we're cheated in the way that we do it sometimes, because the way they would do it. Here's you, you got to understand that from the perspective of. The Greco-Roman world, Christianity was a mystery religion. And what that means is, is that there were certain things known only to the initiates. So you don't realize, they, they would have meetings that would be much longer than ours, and they would have public proclamations of the gospel. Then if you were not a member, you were... Uh, Allowed to leave. <laughs> Dismissed sounds so harsh. And then the real meeting would start. And baptisms weren't done publicly like we think. Baptisms were done later on in the church. Baptisms were done in the catacombs. You know where they put people. You know what the catacombs were for, right? So you didn't know what was going to happen to you. So when you were an initiate, you were taken down into the catacombs and you were walked through a death ritual. And they would literally put you in water. You didn't know you were going to be submerged in water and they didn't let you up right away. Because they needed to shock the system. They needed to, they needed to shock the consciousness. Because the idea was to shock you out of your identity of who you are. See, we attach to all these things because we think they're so permanent. We attach to our pain because we think our pain is permanent. We attach to our circumstances because we think our circumstances are permanent. We attach to the things that we love in this life and then we're anxious about losing them because we're looking for permanence. And that's what constructs for us this false self that ultimately ends up constricting us. And so what they would do is they would literally make you think you were going to die so that it would be a shock to the system so that a new consciousness could arise. So that, that literally what would happen is that as you're coming out of those waters, you would shed the testimony of who you were. And that shock would open up the memory of who you really are. Because when you die, you're, you will die. Sorry, I know some of you don't think that, but... Even Elijah went through this process, even though he didn't physically die, he had to lose who he was as Elijah. So you don't understand when God told him, <laughs> you don't understand when God told him, when he, when he ran <laughs> from Jezebel, and God told him, Elijah, here's some things that you have to do. And it was an, anoint some guy king and an, anoint somebody else to some. And then find Elisha as your successor. And that was the end of his ministry. And actually what you find out was he never did do the, th the other things he was supposed to do. The only thing he did do was prepare Elisha because Elijah wasn't going to exist anymore. So for Elijah to... <laughs> 
See, the Jewish mystics, the, the, chariot of, the chariot of fire, the chariot of fire was Elijah himself, but it was his true self. It was the fire of his own divine being that consumed who he was until who he was was completely gone, and he ascended in his own chariot. Which is why his mantle falls, because he shed entirely the externalizations of who he was. So therefore his mantle falls to Elisha, and Elisha in the same spirit of Elijah goes, and he's the one that fulfills what Elijah was supposed to do. So even though he didn't die physically, he still had to go through the shock of psychological death. So they would take Christians through the shock of psychological death, because, because here's what's going to happen when you die... What's going to be left of you? you? You are going to shed you. Because all that testimony of who you are and how you know yourself and even your name, because your name is just something your parents made up to call you. And it's a social currency. It's not who you are. Which is why in the book of Revelation, the overcomer is given a stone with a new name that only he knows. Because no man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man that is within him. So you shed the, entirely the ego. You shed entirely this physical identity. And the idea in baptism was a shock to the consciousness that would cause you to experience a sense of death so that that destiny seed inside of you could awaken and you could remember who God said that you were. And, once you, and the, first, the first memory of who you are as an eternal being, as a son and a daughter of God, the first memory that you have of your destiny code is being born of God. And whoever is born of God begins to walk according to that script and begins to overcome the world. But we still have to deal with the testimony of our senses. Therefore, we're given the elements of communion... So that we can do this in remembrance of him. So you think it's all about remembering the... (laughs) We think it's all about remembering his historical self because we're still hung up on knowing each other after the flesh. But Paul says in Corinthians to the same church, he said, we used to know Christ after the flesh, but we therefore now no longer know him that way. Did you ever notice that Paul never talks about any of the parables of Jesus? He never talks about any of the miracles of Jesus. He never talks about anything. He never talks about the virgin birth. He never talks about any of the events really of Jesus' natural life because for him, knowing Christ was not about knowing the historical Jesus of Nazareth. It was about knowing the spiritual reality of the person who was inhabiting Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, who had put on Jesus, just like the Spirit of God put on Gideon. So when he's saying, this we do in remembrance of him, (laughs) so see, when you're going through life and you forget who you are, the ritual of communion is there for you to remember who you are because you were chosen in him before this this do in remembrance of him see for paul the lines and for john and all the writers of the gospels the line between jesus and christ and them and god becomes blurred so that you can read texts in very different ways and 
For example, Paul says, when, it was, when, it, when due time came, God, I was chosen by God, and he chose to reveal his son in me. Most of you will read that as, reveal his son to me. So then the question becomes, which son is he revealing in Paul? Is he revealing his son Jesus or is he revealing his son Paul because Paul's forgotten who he was? So you have the testimony of the water. I died with Christ and I was raised that I might walk in newness of life. You have the testimony of the blood. This blood was shed for the remission of sins. Father, forgive them for they know not. See, it's for those moments where I know not and I've forgotten who I really was and I have to do this in remembrance of Him. And actually, when Paul says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup unworthily, how many of you are familiar with that? Come on, come on. I know some of you came out of the AG. I'm sorry. May all the assembly of God people live for in glorious mansions in heaven forever. But when they would sit there and tell you, if you've got sin in your life, if you've got, if you've got, um, I mean, like, like it's there to deal with that. But if you got it, shops closed. If you got sin in your life, if you got something against somebody, don't you dare come take of it unworthily because the Bible says that people die when they take it unworthily. But we miss the mysteries in it. Actually, unworthily means that you take it like you're not worthy to take it. <laughs> if you take it unworthily, oh, I've got sin in my life. I can't take it. Oh, I'm such a worm. I can't take it. Oh, I've got anger in my heart towards Virginia. I'm, I don't. I'm just, you're who I'm looking at. Um, please forgive me. Oh, I can't take of communion. Oh, I'm so unreal. Oh, this is the blood and the body of the Lord. <laughs> Where's the weeping bench? No. Say, so if you take it that way, if you take it unworthily, why? Because you're not remembering who you are. So therefore you're dying because... Because eternal life is connected to who you were before you were born and who you will be after you leave this life. So God put a death sentence on that mess that keeps you bound and you can either die to it now <laughs> and activate the seed of eternal life that's inside you or you can stay wrapped up in that mess and die before your time because you're not activating the power of eternal life of who you are. So, the Christian, so, so then you come to the place where this, the personality, the self that you are, the social self, the self that has a name that interacts with people, becomes the servant of the divine self. Or God puts on Gideon. God puts on you. God puts on me. 
See, so there's nothing in my life that is now an inhibition to the expression of the fullness of my divine self. So there's a progression away from, it doesn't matter what my circumstances look like, God is with me. God is for me in the sense that He's for my highest good. He may not be for my agenda, but my agenda may not be for my highest good. So I trust in the process that He is for me. And then ultimately... I trust that He's in me. Or that I have a divine self. See, in the ancient world, to be the only people who were sons of God, who could claim the title Son of God in the ancient world, were the rulers. Pharaoh, Caesar, the kings. Because the belief was they were ruling as God, in the earth so they themselves had become divine and the term that was used to describe them was sons of God and the coronation where they took the throne was considered their adoption so when Paul says you were chosen in Christ for the adoption To be sons and daughters of God. He's basically saying to become God in the earth. That's why Jesus, that's why the Jews, you realize that's why they killed Jesus. He's going around saying he was a son of God. To say you were a son of God was to say you were a duplication or a manifestation of God on the earth. So they pick up rocks to kill him in John's Gospel, and he says, why are you killing me? And they said, because you, a man, make yourself out to be God. And he turns it right back around on him and says, don't your scriptures say that you are God's? And that you are all sons of the Most High? So to be a son or a daughter of God is not this sentimental, oh, help me get over where my mommy and daddy didn't love me enough that we've made it today. It was to be, to have in your possession a divine self that was bigger and greater than any testimony of your conscience. So that when you're in his presence, the blood of Christ cleanses your conscience so that all that stuff's no longer testifying so that when you're in his presence go back and read hebrews when you're in his presence it's god standing before god it is god's image before god's image god reflecting upon himself paul said in romans second corinthians 3:18 we all beholding as in an image the glory of the lord are changed into the same image but actually it can also read all of us reflecting as mirrors, the glory of the Lord. So that when God looks at you, he's looking into himself. And when you look at God, you're looking into yourself. 
And it's the claiming and the activating and the expression of your divine self that is the overcomer, that overcomes the world, that has a heart at peace and at rest before God so that you know whatever you ask of Him, you'll receive. Because you do the things that please Him, not keeping the rules and rags. But He looks back and says, Ah, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And doing the things that He commands you is not this oppressive, do this, Veronica, or else you're going to burn. It's not that. It's the things He wrote about you and put in you when He was thinking about you before the creation of the world. And when you manifest that, you're manifesting God. And in that is keeping His commandments. And that's what brings Him pleasure. Lord, thank You for Your people. Thank You for the revelation that You're unfolding in this hour. We just pray that you'll bless it to us, that you'll give us grace, peace, and ease as we walk these things out. Help us to come alive to these things in Jesus' name. Amen.